Welcome to another Freshfields Tax Matters podcast. I'm Josh Critchlow with the London Tax Team. Rishi Sunak's second budget as Chancellor started with an enormous giveaway to support the UK economy, including extending furlough all the way to September and maintaining lower rates of VAT on hospitality and the business rates holiday for some time to come. But Mr Sunak also started the groundwork for restoring the nation's finances, with incentives for investment balanced with big tax rises for large business. With me to discuss the Chancellor's latest measures on business taxation are May Smith, Paul Davison and Helen Buchanan, partners in our London tax team. Hello, everyone. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Paul, to get us started, what was the standout measure of this budget for you? Well, as you say, Josh, by some distance, the biggest revenue raising measure in the budget is the increase in the corporation tax rate from its current 19% straight up to 25%. An increase had been widely predicted and given the manifesto commitments on the rates of income tax, national insurance and VAT, that was perhaps hardly surprising. In fact, the 25% figure itself had been bandied about in the press ahead of the announcement. Nevertheless, I think we've perhaps seen that as a bit of a softening up exercise, and I don't know that we were really expecting a straight jump to 25%. Once it comes on stream, the budget forecasts are that this will raise upwards of £15 billion a year which in very rough terms is equivalent to three pence on the basic rate of income tax or a two and a half percent increase in the VAT rate. Now, the government points out that the UK's rate will still be the lowest in the G7, fractionally below the rate in the US, once you factor in state and local taxes there. Clearly, though, this is a very significant change and it reverses a very long-standing trend. In fact, I think it's the first budget in my lifetime to raise the corporation tax rate my whole career, the mantra has been reducing corporation tax rates is good for business, good for the economy, and therefore good for all of us. Clearly, the money has to come from somewhere to pay for all the support measures that we've seen. But unless both main political parties have been wrong all these years in that mantra, this can't really be good news. Still, 19 to 25%, that is really quite a considerable jump. Yes, it is. Uh, And as I say, it's the largest revenue raiser in this budget. Nevertheless, it's softened because the increase isn't immediate. In fact, it'll only come in on the 1st of April 2023. So that aligns with a major theme of the budget, which we might say was spend now, tax tomorrow. The point being that the Chancellor has to simultaneously promise continuing coronavirus-related spending in eye-watering sums for now, and also a return to some sort of fiscal normality in the medium term. So in the budget projections, that upwards of 15 billion a year figure is from 2024 onwards. Interestingly, the detailed policy costings document does project a 2 billion pound increase in tax yield, even in the year before the rate increase comes in, which I think has to be about behavioural responses to this, uh, which is something that strikes me as very hard to predict or to model. The government say on that score that they've factored in impacts on the incentive or not for small businesses to incorporate. But I wonder whether they're also making an assumption about forestalling behaviour. I've not seen any anti-forestalling measures announced as part of this. And while it might not be quite so straightforward to manipulate the timing of corporation tax profits as, say, capital gains tax disposals, 
clearly there's going to be a significant incentive to bring forward profit to pre-1 April 2023 if possible. One other point to make on the timing is that the government's intention to legislate for the April 2023 rate increase is an intention that they'll put into effect in this year's finance bill. That's potentially quite significant for companies with deferred tax assets, because for them, a corporation tax rate rise potentially means an increase in the value of their DTAs, and it'll be an increase by of more than 30% when they go from a rate of 19 to a rate of 25% in terms of the valuation. And that boost to their value could come at some point over the summer when this year's finance bill is substantively enacted. Yes, I can see that could be very significant. Of course, one sector that has had material DTAs in recent years is the banks. And for them, there's also the 8% banking surcharge to consider. What's happening with that? Well, the government is promising a review. They acknowledge that without more, uh, a rate of 25% for corporation tax plus 8% for the surcharge, as they put it, would make UK taxation of banks uncompetitive and damage one of our key exports. As an aside, I might say that that seems a slightly curious way of putting things, given that we've just left the EU single market without any agreement on market access for financial services. Nevertheless, there'll be a review over the, which is uh, to take place over the course of this year, reporting back in the autumn. Uh, the government doesn't seem to be contemplating getting rid of the surcharge altogether, or even necessarily just reducing it by 6% to offset the corporation tax rate rise. The budget documents refer to avoiding a, quote, substantial increase in the combined rate. Coming back to the timing point, though, uh, this does raise the rather intriguing prospect that banks might at some point over the summer, when that substantive enactment point is reached for the finance bill, which I think would be when it passes the House of Commons, we'd expect at the end of July, that at, at that point in time, banks will be writing up the value of their DTAs, possibly from 27% to 33%, only then to have to write them back down again at some subsequent point, albeit only once the outcome of the review on surcharge itself gets to that substantively enacted stage, which could be some way off. Right, so banks need to watch this space. But at least for most companies, the Chancellor is giving us a period of respite before the tax rises take effect down the line. Helen, what else is the Chancellor doing to support the recovery? Well, before the tax hikes and the long and painful road back to balancing the books, it seems we'll be able to make hay in a two-year super investment window. In particular, there's a new super deduction, which has been described as one of the biggest business tax cuts in modern history, and is one of the very few measures for which draft legislation has already been published. So from April 2021 until April 2023, companies investing in new plant and machinery can benefit from a temporary 130% first-year allowance. That's equivalent to almost 25 pence of relief for every pound spent on qualifying assets. There are 50% first-year allowances for special rate assets, like long-life assets, which would normally only get relief at a lower rate. And the super allowance doesn't apply to oil and gas companies who already have their own enhanced allowance regime. But it's really good news for capital-intensive businesses, including manufacturers. However, there is an important sting in the tail. And the first clue to that is in the Red Book, because the super deduction will save taxpayers nearly £30 billion in the first three years. But it then flips into a revenue-raising measure clawing back nearly 5 billion in the following two years. 
okay, so how has the Chancellor managed to do that? Well, there's also new disposal rules for assets which have claimed the super deduction, which means there'll be an immediate balancing charge on disposal of qualifying asset equal to 130% of the disposal proceeds. And of course, there's the usual anti-avoidance rules to prevent game playing. So you might ask yourself, is this really a giveaway? And it really is, yes. But you can also see it as a necessary corollary to the pre-announced increase in the corporation tax rates. Absent um, any kind of incentives or absent a measure like this, if you're a capital-intensive business, you might be tempted to defer your capital investment programme until the rate goes up to 25% so that you can benefit from allowance at that higher rate. This measure is designed to force your hand and encourage you to invest now, unlocking vital cash reserves to kickstart the economy. That's interesting, Helen, particularly the sting in the tail aspect, because one of the other business tax giveaways is uh, a time-limited three-year carryback for trading losses. Now, it's small beer compared to the super deduction that you've been describing, uh, because it only applies to £2 million of losses per annum, which is calculated on a group-wide basis, and it's only available for the next couple of years. So the upfront cost in red book terms is just a billion pounds. But what's interesting is that this so-called giveaway is then expected to be more than recouped over the following four years. And that might be because the Chancellor hopes that by affording this relief and this ability to go back three years in terms of loss utilisation, he can encourage some smaller companies to keep going that might otherwise simply have ceased trading and through that route, access to three-year carryback for terminal loss relief. But also, of course, what this measure does, viewed in isolation, is to monetize for taxpayers within a 19% tax environment, losses that might otherwise have been carried forward, and when carried forward, might have been used in a 25% environment. So again, the Chancellor is perhaps managing to perform the trick of simultaneously supporting business now and shoring up finances in future. Interesting. So taxpayers need to think carefully about the forthcoming changes in the tax rate and how that might affect the choices that they make now using these new reliefs. May, you've been looking at the consultation on R&D incentives. What do you think the Chancellor is planning there? Well, You'll remember that at the moment we have two main R&D reliefs in the UK. There's one that we have for SMEs and that involves an enhanced deduction. And importantly, for some SMEs, they can actually get a payable tax credit back if they're in a loss making position. And then we have a broader RDEC relief, which gives you an above the line tax credit. Based on the consultation that was published, there could actually be some pretty significant changes. The mood music seems to be that the SME relief could go altogether. There are some comments in the consultation that not only is it pretty generous compared to what's offered internationally, actually, and and probably more damningly, is not actually very effective compared to the RDEC relief in stimulating R&D investment. So I wouldn't be entirely surprised if the SME relief isn't in place much longer. That's particularly the case because HMRC clearly regard it as a target for abuse. One of the only immediate measures on R&D, in fact, the only measure, was to introduce a new cap in terms of the payable tax credits that SMEs can obtain. 
But there is some good news as well. It looks as though there could be a reasonably significant reshaping of what spending is actually incentivised. So they're looking to modernise the definition of the type of spending that can benefit from R&D relief. So in particular, R&D that relies on data analytics, cloud computing, mathematical analysis could all start coming within the scope of the relief. But that reshaping won't necessarily just be an expansion. So there's talk of potentially restricting what can benefit to items of spending that benefit the UK and also possibly targeting particular sectors, for example, green investment. So it could just be quite a different landscape rather than just a broader one. And I think taxpayers will increasingly over recent years have been used to coming under scrutiny in relation to their R&D claims. And that looks like a trend that's going to continue because there are a few comments in the consultation showing that HMRC is really now getting fed up with what they describe as boundary pushing specialist R&D agents, essentially encouraging clients to put in dubious R&D claims. And it's clear we're going to see more from HMRC to put a stop to that. Thanks, May. And finally, on the list of investment incentives, of course, we also have the introduction of free ports. And clearly, the government is keen to show what it can do freed from the European Union. So these are going to be particular areas where businesses can invest with customs benefits, no SDLT and various other enhanced investment incentives. But Helen, free ports aside, what other effects has Brexit had on this budget? Well, there's, there's very little that's explicitly Brexit related. One slightly curious change is repealing the UK's implementation of the Interest and Royalties Directive from the 1st of June 2021. This means that withholding tax on payments of interest and royalties to EU-connected companies who don't benefit from treaty relief will, will, will now apply. And I had to admit I was a bit surprised to find it was even still there. And it's not a bit big revenue raiser. So you've got to ask yourself whether this is really just a political measure Perhaps it's a quid pro quo for some of our European cousins writing us out of their own versions of the directive. Or perhaps it's a just because we can measure. The headline explanation is that EU companies will no longer receive a more favourable treatment than companies based elsewhere in the world, and that annual interest and royalties going forward will be governed solely by reciprocal arrangements in double tax treaties. And I think that's telling, as is the announcements of consultations to implement OECD measures on mandatory disclosure and reporting regimes for digital platforms. Together, I think these are signals that the UK is making a conscious decision to move away from EU-inspired legislation and instead aligning itself more with the OECD. I can see the UK becoming a poster child for the OECD, and I think that's a trend that will continue and resonate strongly, obviously, with the post-Brexit mindset. Right, so perhaps the traces of a little Brexiteer flag-waving coming through in this budget. But May, I think listeners will be most surprised about some of the expected tax policies that were simply missing from the budget. What were they? Well, there's actually a few pretty significant things on that list. And I think some taxpayers will be breathing a sigh of relief at this point. An area that had been trailed for some time since last summer, in fact, was capital gains tax. And there'd been suggestions that the Chancellor was keen to move to equalise capital gains and income tax rates. You'll remember there's really quite a big gap at the moment for additional rate pairs between 45% income tax rates and the general 20% CGT rate. People had been expecting that even if not equalisation, we might see the rates moving closer together, possibly targeted at particular types of income. 
But actually, we've seen nothing at all on that this year, that there was some suggestion that number 10 was opposed to the measure. So perhaps that's the reason. Another area where I think that there had been quite a lot of press speculation was that there could be some kind of windfall tax, possibly an excess profits tax. And the logic for that was it's pretty common when you've got a hole in public spending to try and plug that gap by looking at the people who you can identify as having benefited in some way from government support in the past or from the situation giving rise to the problem. And you can see that reasonably recently with the bank payroll tax that was levied in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And there were lots of rumours floating around that we might see something similar again, perhaps targeting online retailers and supermarkets who've really profited in pandemic times. But at the moment, nothing at all on that. Perhaps less surprising, there was also nothing on the online sales tax that the government's been consulting on. But that's actually a reasonably early stage of consultation. And there are some tricky interactions with more international initiatives. So I think that one although a gap is probably a bit less of a surprising one. One of the other things that was missing were changes to the NIC rules for self-employed freelancers. That had been mooted as a possible quid pro quo for the support that they got during the pandemic. And we've seen nothing on that yet. But we shouldn't forget that the delayed off-payroll working rules come in for the private sector from April. And those are expected to raise a pretty hefty £3.8 over the next five years or so from the self-employed workforce. So uh, they are to some extent going to be contributing more um, going forward. That's right. And it's fair to say that with this year's slightly unusual three-stage budget approach, there's probably a bit of potential for new announcements still to come. So perhaps taxpayers who were relieved not to see announcements um, yesterday should still be keeping their eyes peeled for further announcements that might bring in some of these changes. Thank you, May. And thanks to everyone, May Smith, Helen Buchanan and Paul Davison. If listeners would like further information on the budget, look out for us on LinkedIn, the Freshfields website, or just ask your usual Freshfields contacts.